Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg, and I'm here to read you my Dvar Torah on Parshat Vaera, whose theme is, You are not free until you are at home. In this week's Torah's portion, the pace of Exodus liberation steps up dramatically. Moshe, in the cliffhanger which we saw at the end of Parshat Shmot, was demoralized by the Hebrew slaves' apathy toward their impending freedom. He was devastated by Pharaoh's tightening the screws on the slaves and increasing their suffering in order to crush Moshe's initiative. See Exodus chapters 5 and 6. The tyrant cracked down because he did not yet realize that with the new divine intervention in history, the age of unchecked absolute human power was over. Pharaoh still thought that he was God. Thereupon the Lord unleashes ten plagues, which in a relentless sequence undermine Pharaoh's authority, break his arrogance, as well as the Egyptian people's spirit. But first, God proclaims the coming of freedom in four movements in our Parsha. Quote, I shall bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will save you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments, and I will take you to me to be my covenant people. Exodus 6, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Now, various commentators analyze the four verbs of redemption in God's proclamation as signifying the four stages of psychological liberation that a slave must go through to become a truly free person. To, quote, bring you out of under the burdens of Egypt means to undermine the self-evident superiority of the master, which both the owner and the passive slave take as an unassailable given. When the authority of the master is broken, the slave begins to feel the injustice and wrongfulness of being enslaved. The second movement, save you from their bondage. That means quite literally to stop the servile labor, to choose the work and do it for adequate recompense from now on. Slave work conditions the slave to feel intrinsically servile and inferior. Stopping such labor triggers the beginning of a process of becoming a free laborer, that is, only working for dignified and personally chosen purposes. Third movement, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, means that the manifest divine intervention motivates the slave to move from accepting and obeying abusive humans. Henceforth, the liberated slave will obey only humans who imitate God, i.e. by acting as just authority, who respects their dignity as a free and equal person. Fourth movement, I will take you to be my people. This represents the fullest expression of achieving freedom. Liberty does not mean that one no longer obeys or one serves no causes. Rather, in the absence of external coercion, feeling that one is living in a state of liberty, one freely chooses to serve a higher cause. That gives meaning and value to one's life. Jewish tradition recognizes the four stages of freedom with a ritual celebration. At the Seder, there is a well-established custom to mark these four verbs of redemption by drinking a cup of wine four times at strategic points in the Seder. Of course, uh, the existence of the four cups goes back to the Mishnah, Sipsachim 
the early 3rd century CE at the latest. The first source to identify the cups with the four verbs of redemption is found in the Jerusalem Talmud in the late 4th to early 5th century. As it were, the drinking of the four cups constitutes reenacting the Israelites' ascent from the depths of enslavement to a people internally free and ready to go forth and live a life of liberty. However, a closer look at the Torah portion shows that there's a fifth verb of liberation in the divine proclamation, quote, I will bring you to the land, see Exodus chapter 6, verse 8. That land will become the homeland and the heritage of the Jewish people. This stage, homeland, is a necessary part of the liberation process, in part because it fulfills the covenantal promise to the patriarchs that the land of Canaan would become a homeland and a place for the Israelites to flourish. And compare the promises to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 18-21, or Genesis 17, verses 7-8, or the promise to Isaac in Genesis 26-34, or to Jacob in Genesis 38-12. This has been promised to all of the patriarchs. But the deeper point is that becoming a free person is not just a matter of no longer being ordered around by a master, nor is freedom achieved simply by making one's own life decisions. To become fully free, one must have a home, a place where one lives by right, where one's dignity is not dependent on the sufferance or tolerance of others. This frees me to be myself, to know what I want and to act to accomplish it without fear of others or intimidation. Under these circumstances, my activities reflect my choices in a state of liberty. Then every act in life, even taking on obligations, confirms and embraces the spirit of inner personal freedom. Around the world, tens of millions of people every year try to emigrate at great cost and danger to make a better life for themselves and their families. They are seeking a home a place of personal security and freedom. There is almost no reverse flow to lands of oppression or places where individuals are not secure in their rights. The climax of this migration process is when the immigrants attain citizenship, the right to be in the country. The Bible's narrative shows this indispensability to liberation of the final stage of building a homeland. The march of the liberated Hebrews through the desert was hampered by continual regression to slave psychology, manifested in difficult situations by failure to take responsibility. You can see Exodus 15, 23-25 on Numbers 16, 6-7. Or by blaming others instead of taking remedial action. See Exodus chapter 16, 2-4 on Numbers 11, verses 4-7. Or by giving up quickly in the face of difficulty. See on this Exodus 14, verses 11-12, on Numbers 14, verses 1-4. to Even the next generation did not become fully free until they fought for a homeland and went on to build it. One can compare here the experience of African Americans in the United States. Given emancipation by President Lincoln, their freedom was confirmed by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. But 
they were given little or no chance to build a free home, a place where they had equal rights and opportunity, the continuing discrimination, the semi-servitude of sharecropping and not owning the land, the systematic degradation of Jim Crow laws, the lack of access to empowering education, and the lack of personal security meant that the psychological ravages of slavery continued to afflict their community and families long after slavery was officially abolished. So the importance of attaining a homeland was epitomized by a significant tradition recorded in the Talmud and practiced into the Middle Ages. It was to drink a fifth cup of wine at the Seder. See Babylonian Talmud Pesachem 118a. And for more historical background, this fifth cup, you can see Joshua Culp, the Shechter Haggadah, second revised edition, Jerusalem, pages 175 to 176. So this fifth cup was a celebration of the divine promise, I will bring you to the land. Yet this custom, which was never the dominant practice, admittedly, mostly died out. Given the state of exile of the Jewish people, I assume it was too painful to dwell on this subject. It could well spoil the Seder's overall spirit of rejoicing at the Exodus. However, after the State of Israel was established in 1948, Rabbi Menachem M. Kasher, his dates are 1895 to 1983, a great scholar and anthologist of rabbinic literature, edited in Israel, Passover, Haggadah. You can see it, including in its English edition, New York, 1992, translated by Rabbi Dr. Harry Friedman. In the Haggadah, Kasher proposed to adopt the custom of drinking a fifth cup of wine at the Seder in commemoration of the fifth divine promise to the Hebrew slave, which was now being fulfilled in the recreation of a Jewish state in Israel. Sadly, in my view, Kasher's proposal met with no official rabbinic support and little popular response. However, my family and I were moved by this idea and adopted it for our annual Seder. Several decades later, it is even clearer that creating a Jewish and democratic state, a home where being fully Jewish in private and in public by right, has impacted all Jews everywhere. In no small measure, the Israeli model is nurturing a free Jewry throughout the world, and not just in Israel. So I propose we should adopt the custom of the fifth cup at the Seder to express our gratitude at being alive in an age of restored Jewish sovereignty and dignity. We are not just free at last. With restored sovereignty, quote, never again, now means that we can defend ourselves if that freedom is challenged.